My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and today we are going to talk about arousing our lives with adventure, kindness, creativity, and using our unique gifts. Later in the show, Dr. Megan Fleming will weigh in for a listener who wants to make the most of her temporarily long-distance relationship with her fiancé, and there are a couple of complications. First, I am so honored to introduce you all to one of the most inspiring people I've met. Linda Cruz is an international aid worker, disaster management specialist, author, inspirational speaker, and social entrepreneur. Her 17 years of frontline humanitarian aid work has taken her to every continent in the world, where she has assisted in some of the world's most catastrophic natural disasters. She shares much of her journey in her book, Marmalade and Machine Guns, 16 Countries, Three Continents, 12 Years and One Suitcase, One Woman's Quest to Help Disaster-Stricken Communities Back on Their Feet, which was endorsed by Sir Richard Branson, who said, Linda makes the impossible possible. I was thinking on my way over here how you really do make the impossible seem very possible without trying, you know, and being in your presence is so inspiring. So first, I just really want to thank you for sharing your time with me today. That's my great pleasure. Thank you so much, August. So I know that early on in your life, you believed that you wanted to make a difference and life took you on a path that was wonderful in many ways, but the humanitarian work you do now wasn't necessarily the path that you were on. So leading up to 1996, could you tell us what your life was like then? Yes, of course. Well, I, I married when I was very young. I met my Prince Charming when I was just 16 years old. So I got married when I was 20. And by the age of 24, I had two beautiful children, Gail and Graham. And my first career, I was a nurse. I totally loved it. So I never wanted to be off duty. It was just my absolute joy to be there every single day. But as happens to many people, I I got divorced by about the age of 28. And I was one of those women who decided that I didn't want any maintenance or any help from my husband very silly, don't do that anyone. Um, So I was going to be super mum and I realised that I just couldn't earn enough money as a nurse and I wasn't going to be available as much as I needed to be for them. So I took a different job and I took a job for money. And as I looked at this, it was job, it was for a sales representative in in a pharmaceutical company. It ticked all the boxes. It was good salary, company car, good holidays, Oh, and I thought, that's for me. I'll be able to take care of the children and it'll be absolutely great. And so I took the job and right from the first day, I hated it. But actually, I was doing it for my kids and I was doing it for the money. And so I might have come home each night and had an extra glass of wine or cried myself to sleep. But in the morning, I thought, no, carry on because you're doing it for your children. 
but um, it's amazing how we can ignore how miserable we are and the stress we're in. And I was driving home from a conference from the north of England to the south. It was a dark winter's night. And as I was driving on the motorway on the highway, I had this terrible stabbing pains behind my eyes. And then the curtains came down and I went blind. I have no idea how I stopped the car, intuition, angels, but I sat there on the hard shoulder of this highway, scared, frightened, completely lost. I would never see my kids again. I'd never work again. And then I started, why me? What have I done wrong? And that terrible moment when you think your life is completely over and it was a dark winter's night, no one stopped and I sat there alone, frightened, angry, just not knowing what was going to happen. And of course, those moments make you wake up. And I started to pray. And I actually said, you know, my prayer was, if my sight comes back, I promise that I'll find what I was born to do. And I will live it. I will find my passion and my purpose. And I will live it. And that was my promise. And how did you realize that the work you're doing now was the answer? Well, it was quite interesting because after when my sight came back and I went back to my home and was with great joy, I saw my children and and I was able to go to work the next day. But I started to realise my children were still dependent on me, so I couldn't just leave home. But as I started to analyse what I was really good at was that I was, of course, a carer, I was a nurse. I've been a businesswoman for four years. I was a mature woman, so all the life experiences... I'd always been a great traveller, always curious about cultures and cultural relationships and cultural sensitivity. And I knew I had a lot of courage and a lot of resilience. So when I put it all together, I realised that I could go to some of the worst places on earth and help. But of course, you never know, August, until you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I, I can imagine the idea of it and it actually happening, you know, are sometimes completely different things. Was there one specific event that inspired you to take your first action? Well, it was interesting. It was really when my children were about to leave home. So my son came to me and said he's going to the army. My daughter said, it's time for me to go to university. And I sat them down on the sofa and I said, can I leave home now? So that was the catalyst for me to leave them following their dream. And then I really sort of tested myself out. Could I live in a country where I don't understand the language? Could I live in a place where the bathrooms are awful? Could I, you know, sleep somewhere where there's cockroaches climbing up the uh, mosquito nets? You know, could I do it? And so my first foray was going into the front line was just to test my own resilience, courage and ability to cope in those situations. Had you camped before? Like, had you had experiences where there are bugs on your skin? (laughs) Or was this all pretty brand new? No, my parents were great scout leaders. So from the age of five, I was in, you know, brushing my teeth in the stream and and used to camping. No, that's sort of, and my dad, incredible adventurer and always curious about everything in life. So definitely my parents gave me that sense of community service, um, of adventure, of joy in helping others. And so that was always a very, very deep rooted seed within me. And and yes, roughing it was something I found as, as an adventure rather than a hardship. And yeah. you take it to an extreme, <laughs> in a beautiful way. I, I'm really inspired by it. Was the tsunami the first big catastrophe you aided? 
And how did you go about that? Absolutely, it was the tsunami. And, um, and that's the worst disaster I've ever been at or assisted in. And I was working in Uzbekistan at the time. And, and I was doing this project, it was coming to the end. And I remember sitting in front of my computer doing the work. And all of a sudden, all these images started to come up. You know, waves 100 foot high, you know, 250,000 dead, affecting 50 countries. And I had one thought, I must go. For some reason, I could see all this problem. And I remember talking to a few friends and they say, what do you mean you're going in? Most people are running away. And I said, no, no, I know I must go. I know I'm going to help here. And I approached a friend who was working in Sri Lanka with the Red Cross. And I said, can I come and help you? She said, don't come. It's chaos. And I thought, I know I'm going. So I started to do a bit of research and I realised that Thailand had had a huge problem. So literally, I just bought a one-way ticket from Tashkent in Uzbekistan to Phuket in Thailand. And that's how I started. Gave yourself no other option. And you really listen to your gut, it sounds like. Yeah, I do. And it's been something... I think I've, I think most of us have it, of course. We do always have those hunches. We should or shouldn't do it. But I've learned to trust it because often that... You know, I call it the monkey brain, but it can actually talk you out of doing anything. So when I feel that strong feeling, I check in a few places, but normally I just go and I don't tell too many people anymore because they tend to stop me. Right. So it's very important (laughs) for me that um, I really listen to myself, trust myself and then take the action. Um, But it was the most catastrophic scene I've ever been to. Mm. And obviously you have wonderful skills that you knew you could use there. Once you got there, though, there's that sort of moment of, I'm here, where do I start? Did you have that or had, did you have a plan in mind? Well, no, I didn't. And I, I'm, there's one story that actually happened to me as I was going to that camp, which I, I like to share because it just shows how that we all have such a level of resilience we don't know about. And as I actually landed in Thailand and started to make my journey to this survivor's camp that I was going to be in, I saw so much debris. I saw, you know, the cars were on tops of houses. There was like, the resorts were crumbled like matchboxes. There was glass everywhere. And there was this horrible smell of death because so many people had died. And I remember saying to the taxi driver, you've got to stop because I must just regroup myself before um, I go to the camp to help. So I got out of the car and I walked to the cliff edge. And I remember as clearly today as I did then, looking over the cliff edge and seeing the sea full of dead bodies. And coming back from that experience, collapsing and thinking, how quickly can I get out of this country? However much I wanted to help, I kept thinking, can I really manage this level of death and grieving and devastation? And it was extraordinary because at that moment, I had a flashback to when I was an 18-year-old nurse and my matron standing in front of me in this starched white apron and very stern face saying, nurse, it is not about you. You are here to serve. You are here to make a contribution. And I think many of us in our lives have those moments when we think, do I really have that capacity to go on? But hearing those voices, I stopped thinking about myself 
and remembered why I was there. And after a large gulp of water, <laughs> I managed to get back in that car and head to the largest survivors camp, which was 5,000 people. Incredible, incredible. So the work that you do is very independent. You're basically, I don't know if you'd say freelance, but you're out there on your own, doing your own initiatives. You don't work for a specific large company, and that's, I know, your, your definite preference. So I think most people who aren't familiar with these kinds of efforts might wonder, you know, how do you know what to do? Do you go in and and ask questions? Do you go to a community leader? What's your process once you arrive in a community? Well, what I do is, I mean, I luckily because I'm a nurse, if I go right at the beginning when the disaster just happened, I can really just start to help with the first aid part of it, which is really useful. But that's not my main reason I'm there. And the way I work out the process is I literally observe... I talk and I really get to know the people I'm going to help first. I call it wear their moccasins. So before I come up with any idea or possible solution, I literally eat, sleep, live with them. So I feel their pain. I feel their struggle. And for example, when I was in Thailand after the tsunami, it wasn't until a mum came to me and with outstretched hands said to me, will you please take my baby? I can no longer feed her. And all these alarm bells were going off because in, well, it doesn't matter what country you're in, but if you start to receive money long term, you become dependent on that money coming in every month, every month. And actually, that can be great for an emergency phase. But if you keep receiving, I call it these handouts, you lose your dignity and your self-esteem as well as your independence. So what I realized was... Um, and by the way, I said back to her, no, I will not feed your baby. And she looked so shocked and horrified. But I knew that I had to find out a way she could earn her own money. And, and this, is, this has been my model forever because I, I've realised over the 17 years of working on the front line that economic independence, being able to earn your own money and take care of your own family is the answer to everything. For men, it gives them back their independence and their self-esteem. For women, they can then take care of their children properly. They're able to send them to school and healthcare. And often these aren't things you can take for granted in a third world country. Often you have to pay for that and you have very little money. So this has been my key thing. And I don't do it alone. As you say, I'm freelance, but what I do, I'm a broker. So I know that within the country I'm helping, there are great business people, international and national community. And so I always engage them. I call them my tribe. <laughs> I always engage them because people want to help and often they don't know how. So, for example, in Thailand, after this awful disaster with the tsunami, I asked the business leaders from Bangkok to help me to come up with a business idea, a market opportunity with someone like this woman who had a young baby she could no longer feed. How could she earn money now, today, straight away? So I've and, and I love working with the business leaders because they love competition. They love challenge. So when I said I need an answer in a week, mm -hmm. they're like their eyes light up. They've got, <laughs> they have to work, think fast. And they know the budget has to be very s small. Yeah. But they also know they can't suggest anything unless it's going to be sustainable for the next five or ten years. Mm. They're never going to say to her, I'll make ten cushion covers and I'll try and sell them. Ah. Uh. It's not sustainable. 
So when I, I threw this gauntlet down to them and say, come on, let's have a new business. They ran away back to Bangkok after talking to the villagers, looking around at the geography, looking at what's growing. And it took them one week only to come back with a solution. Can you believe that, August? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I love that. So tell us more about business leaders and why you decided to pair business leaders with these brilliant student minds for Global Race for Good, one of your incredible ventures, and what the importance of those two specific communities are to this outreach. Well, what I believe is within the charitable world, we have very great big hearted people. But we don't have the most best and brilliantest brains. They're the ones that work for Google and Facebook and Tesla, okay? The great innovators. And what, but we need the same intelligence to be applied to the problems we have in the third world, in developing worlds, in fact, anywhere in the world, to be frank. And so, for example, with the, the business leaders in Thailand after the tsunami, their incredible idea was that lining the coast where the wave hit were acres of rubber trees. And these trees were still standing. Their grandparents had harvested rubber. And all it took was a coconut shell, a knife and a rubber mangle for that community. Total cost 200 US dollars. The people previously had been working in the hotel industry as a, as a bellboy gardener or, or a, a um, washerman. And when they changed to work and harvest rubber, Within three months, they were earning four times the amount of money than they did in the hotel industry. Wow. That was a brilliant brain finding the solution. They did nothing else. They didn't give me any money. All they did was gave me their intelligence to solve that problem. Beautiful. So we are doing the same thing with Global Race for Good. I'm taking brilliant brains from California, from the business world, brilliant brains from universities, and I put them together. Why? Because you have the mature business brain with all the experience, and we need that. But you also need this fresh, unprogrammed, excited brain coming out of university where they think everything is possible. Can you imagine you put those together in a team? I have five mm. business leaders and five students. It's magic. magic. Yeah. And then <laughs> I make them compete against each other. <laughs> yeah. So, and business people love to win. Yeah. Every business leader taking part says to me, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And they're winning for good. Mm. Business as a force for good. And guess what the prize is? They come with me to implement the solution they have found by the competition. Yeah. So they will come with me to Nepal and impl implement a project that they have found the solution for. That is so exciting. I, I just would love to, you know, participate in some way. And I know so many people, and I'm going to ask you later on how we can all take part in some of these ventures, but you mentioned magic. And I don't know how many people realize that you actually are a, a magician, that there is magic in your family, which I wonder, does that play a role in some of your creativity and, and your approach, which seems to really highlight fun among other things? Yes, I just, I, I call my work serious fun because <laughs> yeah. the output is serious. But if you don't have fun along the way, nothing operates. Now, when I'm working on the front line, it's usually incredibly intense. It's catastrophic. It's death. It's grieving. But for someone to rebuild their life, you first of all have to rebuild their heart and their soul. So I call that part psychological recovery. And if you, if you ignore that, the rest doesn't work. Mm. So... 
The great thing is I was born into a family of magicians. My father's a magician. My grandfather was a magician. Even my little granddaughter is a magician <laughs> and she's just two. Yeah. But, you know, magic doesn't need translation. People smile when they see magic. And it's just one part of the way that I help people to heal their hearts. I also do it through sport. Often we start, you know, uh, football tournaments or volleyball. Um, we do drama, music. I've even had a mobile circus come out. Wow, that's <laughs> We've amazing. We've had jugglers and stilt walkers and clowns. But, you know, when you, we, we all know laughter is the best medicine. So it doesn't matter what's happened to you. The more you can laugh and smile and raise your energy and your vibration, it's the key to everything. So absolutely. And that's why, why of course, I started this race for good competition. It's only three weeks. It's fast. It's fun. And you leave a huge impact. But fun is incredibly important to me. Everything works better when you're having fun. I love it. And I know your life is so adventurous and there is a lot of fun. And you've also had some really challenging, scary experiences along the way that you write about in your, your wonderful book. Uh, you talk about times when your life was at risk, when you had to stitch up your own skin. Would you tell us about one of the most daunting experiences and, and how you were able to get out of the situation? Yes, I have had quite a few, August. So I'm just quickly scanning my brain to which one I'll share. But I believe when I was in, probably when I was in, in Nepal during the Maoist time, which was way back in 2005, six, um, I was there doing my humanitarian work. And just by force of my character, I rarely stop whatever's going on. And most people would have stopped. But um, inadvertently, when I was coming back on a motorbike across the mountains from one of my villages, I, my, the driver who was actually driving the bike and I was on the back, he drove into a Maoist boy training camp. All these boy soldiers who'd been trained up by the Maoists, very young, very uh, passionate, but very inexperienced, saw this foreigner into their camp on a bike and all the guns were pointed at me within a heartbeat. And of course it flashes through your head, that's it, my life is over, I'm not going to going to survive this one and I always start to go inside and think what can I do how can I help and the prayers pour in but actually in that situation I was so lucky because my driver was an incredibly streetwise fast-thinking man and when he saw this situation getting worse and worse and then pointing their guns at me, he threw the bike down and he started to berate me and act as though he wasn't my friend. It was just so extreme and I had all these emotions going on, but he is my friend, why is he acting like that? Did you wonder if he was like a double agent or did you know he was trying to help you? I No, the double agent came into my mind. But in that split second, I couldn't work out what he was doing. But he was so clever because he diverted the these young boy soldiers to stop thinking about me and turning against me, he did that. They pushed me to the corner and secured me. And then he asked them to join him and tell what was going on and to drink with him. And bit by bit, he got them drunk. And as the hours were passing and I was biting my fingernails and thinking, what the hell is going to go? I, I'm really, really concerned. He... Once, the, once these kids were asleep, he got me onto the motorbike and we left. I thought I'd get shot in the back as soon as that bike was revved. But here I am. I'm still standing. <laughs> <gasps> I was holding my breath. I, I read it and I still was holding my breath. It's incredible. 
and I I think a lot of people who might be interested in going to Nepal or India or some of these different places that you go to help, safety would be a concern, partly just out of unfamiliarity, right? I've heard some people, I have friends who trek in Nepal and they say, well, the 405 in LA is more dangerous. But (laughs) I wonder, you know, you take people out there. Oh, yes. How safe is it from that standpoint? Um, I only take people where it's very safe. And the Maoists' uh, time in Nepal is long gone. Um, And I've been systematically taking people to the front line now for nearly 10 years. And it's such a joy. I take them either Africa, Asia or South America. I work all over the world. Uh, Morocco is a very uh, favourite place for people, right up in the Atlas Mountains with this beautiful Berber community as in the Himalayas, because currently I'm working in the Himalayas after the earthquake. And um, so it's a very favourite place for me to take people. And I have a lot of Nepali staff, probably 10 to 15 staff come with us. The local porters, the Sherpas, the people who know the land inside and out. But I only take people for the most amazing in-depth experience so that they can actually share their gifts and help and also have their own transformation within such a beautiful country. But it's totally safe. Um, That's one of my absolute rules. I only go into the dangerous areas. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So I imagine every day is very different on the front lines. But could you give an idea of what a semi-typical day might be for someone who's not a medical professional, someone that you bring out there who just simply wants to, to help? Yes. Um, When they come with me, we live in the village we're helping. And it could be like a a guest house if they have them. Or, for example, in Nepal at the moment, we're sleeping in tents because that's the best place to stay. But we live in the village. So we have breakfast with the people. We in the evenings, we light a big bonfire and we dance around the bonfire and we share with them. But during the day when I take people with me, but the first of all, I need them to immerse in the culture. So, for example, Nepal is Buddhist and Hindu. So they need to understand the role of the monk, the role of the shaman. And I take them to the temples. They talk to the monks. They talk to the shamans. Because to help people, you've got to understand their philosophies, their religion, their culture, their programming. And then I really task them to go and identify the most vulnerable people to help. So they will walk around the village with a guide and a translator and they will really get to understand a day in the life of a villager. What time do they get up? What do they do? Do they go to the fields? How do they earn their money? How many children do they have? Do they have a school? Do they have a nurse? Where we're working at the moment, the nearest health post is at least two hour walk away. And when the people get there for their vaccinations for their babies, often the nurse isn't there. So you have to start to understand the life of a villager. What happens when they die? The things that we would take for granted here, birthdays, anniversaries, celebrations, what do they do? But their key thing is to find out how to uplift that community, to give it a better quality of life. Where I am now, they've never seen a television. They've never had the internet. They do have a phone that works. But this last group of business leaders I took out just this February, they realized there was some help needing with the education. They're going to build a playground so that sport can happen there. What did I say about psychological recovery? They're helping with, they really research the healthcare 
workers. There's two that have volunteered for 20 years with no pay, wow. no medicine in the village. So they now organise that. We've now got someone who's being paid who's coming into the village who can actually do the basic injections and the basic first aid. We also look at livelihood recovery. So how can they earn their, earn their money? While we were there, we had a whole chicken farm start. We had goats. We've got all sorts of things happening for them to be able to earn their own money. But I asked the people to come with me to be detectives. I want to know what they can see and how, it, with their perspective and, and intelligence, what can they see would bring a different vibrancy into the community? Mm. And how long would one of these ventures take? As short as three days, as long as seven. I do that because business people are very busy, they tell me. <laughs> so, but I have found over the years that people come for like three or five days and often they extend mm. because the joy and the usefulness they find when they're there is so huge. And it is magical. Mm. You know, you have this unconditional love. People adore you for coming that way and just sharing who you are. And the best thing you can do is give a hug because they love that. Aww. Just that human contact. Yeah. Someone from across the other side of the world coming to visit with them. Universal and, language. Totally. So it's so many ways. We are transformed by being there. We see one of the students from a, a Californian university came with me in January and it's so opposite to her life. And as she was there, she said, I have never seen such happiness anywhere in the world. And these people have no material goods at all, no television, no internet, but the joy that comes from them is, it blows you away as it did this young university student from California. I imagine in many ways, you go there thinking you're going to give and you receive so much. You mentioned transformation. How has this work transformed you? Oh, what a great question. I, I take nothing for granted. I appreciate everything. I don't often have running water or electricity or a bed. And when I come back to the first world and I see how we're, we live in such a secure place, we have all these amenities and it's changed me in as much as my values are on human connection, human contribution, love, kindness, generosity. And so I bring that back into the first world and I, I realise how precious everything is mm. and how much we must live never planning for five, ten years in advance. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but... Really, if every single day we were kind to someone, gave that extra smile, that's what being on the front line has taught me. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. I have to ask because it's so fascinating. You, When you made this decision to change the course of your life and pursue something different, you pretty much sold or stored everything that you had and you live out of a suitcase. Yes. I remember my first year of being overseas, I would like call back to my dad and say, I'm still cutting the grass for you. And I said, dad, I'm not coming back. And he <laughs> said, right. <laughs> so what I realized was I didn't need a house. I didn't need paintings or books or a car. And I sold everything about 16 years ago. And until this very day, I still own one suitcase, the content of one suitcase, nothing else in the whole world. And it was a very 
intentional decision because I realised, A, I didn't need it. But for me to be as free to be able to move when people needed me, I needed to be able to get on that plane or get on that canoe, bike, yak, horse, whatever, and go. And I tell you what, August, when you're carrying your stuff on your back... (laughs) And those straps are digging into your shoulders. You say, I don't need that extra pair of jeans. Don't I really need those shoes? And yeah. you start to really jettison things. So I absolutely have got so accustomed to living out of one suitcase. I know, ladies, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's possible. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. And do you ever get concerned that it might get lost somewhere or do you have a backup suitcase someplace like extra necessities it's very interesting i usually have a very small bag with me that is another like emergency bag which would literally be a couple of pairs of underwear you know and some wet wipes a little bit of perfume because it's always you never know what the smells are going to be like but real basic necessities in a very small bag um but actually, I've become so not dependent on things. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I was just thinking that it, you value what you have more, but you also realize where the value really is, which isn't in the things. Quite. Yeah. So, it, no, I, I must admit, I don't have that fear. You have met really fascinating people of all walks of life in your journeys, including the Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. Tell us what that experience was like. Oh, it was one of those dreams that I never thought would happen. In fact, it was, I was working with the Tibetan refugees in India and um, I'd been there nearly a year and I had a call to visit the Dalai Lama. He wanted to hear about my work. What an honor. So I met him in a monastery in the north of India and, uh, and as I was sharing and he was very impressed because I was able to, I'd been able to work out that Tibetan refugees were able to get employment by me brokering a passage between them as refugees and the Indian business leaders. So I bridged this gap and the Tibetan communities were beginning to thrive. And he was really grateful. And as I was chatting to him, he looked at me with his wonderful smile and said, but you're a nurse, aren't you? Would you take on a really big task and go to the high Himalayas for me, where we have the highest infant mortality in the world? And a great charity in the US had worked out the problem and all I was asked to do was to go and share the messages. And so, such an honour, so humbling, and to be in the presence of a man who is pure love. Mm. You couldn't sense anything other than joy and happiness. And if anyone has the chance to read his book, The Art of Happiness, it just shows you that that really should be our goal. And my goodness me, he lives it. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So tell us how we can get involved. I know you finished your book talking about volunteerism and how not everybody can afford to or have the freedom to do what you do, or maybe they don't feel as called to do that particular kind of of humanitarianism. How can we get either involved or support your work? And then what are some other ways that in our own lives we can start to cultivate this kind of change? Yeah, there's many, many ways. And I think the greatest thing is um, just from everyone, never get overwhelmed by problems. That's my big message. doesn't matter where you live in London or L.A. or anywhere in the world. I always say shine a torch around your feet. And if you can affect the change of kindness and love in your own small community and the cost of a smile or a hug is nothing. So please start there. 
What I found um, as I travel around the world that to be able to help virtually is great because many people, as you say, can't actually move for whatever reason, children, elderly parents. And that's why I've started things like Race for Good because that's a virtual competition. And I particularly there harness the brains of business people and students. But I love it also when people can come overseas because I think you get another experience. And often there's a time in our life, either when we're in our university years or just after, or when we're older in our 50s, that there's a time when you can actually decide to take a, a week out. And it is magical because you have such a, a transformational change yourself because you see people so happy in such a a challenging and poor environment and you help through your personal gifts mm. your gifts have a much bigger value than any dollar so what your passion is you might be great at accounting you might be great at marketing you might be great at communicating you might be a great innovator this is what these communities need they need you they don't need your money as much. Money is always required to make things happen. But take the, the, the focus of the money and put the focus on your gifts, the gifts you were born with. You might be just good at making people laugh. I've taken magicians to the front line and that's been their key role to make people laugh. So never say I don't have a gift because you do. If a magician can make a difference, you can. So there's so many ways. Race for good. I take I call them be the change trips, the ones where I take people overseas. And I do that five or six times a year all over the world. Um, and I make it very comfortable. It's not a boot camp. You're there to experience the joy and to make a difference. Mm. My website, which I know August will be sharing with you, um, has lots of information, but I love people. Connect with me, email me, call me, <laughs> and uh, I will find a way that you can make a difference. Beautiful. What is your biggest goal moving forward? Is to facilitate and inspire others to see, to feel, to know what I've had the luck to do. And it is, it takes you to another dimension of your life to knowing what's really real and I would as many people as possible and that's why I love doing keynotes and speaking in front of I don't care if it's real estate agents or women's groups or because there's such basic messages that I've learned when I've been overseas like connectedness and kindness and I've survived by the kindness of strangers even in California I'm living by the kindness of strangers and kindness has to be the key to a happy life. Beautiful. Thank you so much again, Linda. Everyone, to learn more about her work and ways you can participate, visit lindacruz.com, L-I-N-D-A-C-R-U-S-E.com. She is always seeking brilliant hearts and minds to help out. Much of her work is made possible by sponsors, so if you run a business or want to do some personal good, please consider contributing to her causes. Again, that's lindacruz.com. You can also stay tuned by following her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find Global Race for Good, Global Race, the number four, good, on all three of those networks, and follow Linda Cruz on Twitter. Now for our question from a listener. Lisette wrote this. 
My fiancé took a job overseas that will last one year and is starting soon. He'll be in the same city as his ex-girlfriend, who he is still friends with. I've met her and strongly suspect that she still has feelings for him, and although I trust him, the idea of them hanging out together makes me uncomfortable. What should I do? I'm also wondering if you have any suggestions for making long-distance relationships work, sexually and otherwise. We'll only see each other twice in person the next 12 months. Such an important question. Thank you, Lisette. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say. Lisette. Thanks so much for this question. And I certainly can appreciate it's going to be very challenging to spend a year apart from your fiance. And especially since um, you know that he has maintained a friendship with his ex-girlfriend and that sense of um, feeling like, you know, maybe she's not completely done with the relationship. I think first and foremost, it's to recognize no matter how long time they were together, the reality is he ended it and ultimately started a relationship with you and you're the one that he chose to um, propose and wants to spend the rest of his life with. So absolutely, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges about um, being long distance, especially overseas and a time change. But I think sort of first and foremost, you know, you need to bring up just sort of these thoughts and concerns and um, just reinforce how, why, what it is about what's unique, right? About your relationship that brought you two together and what the plans are for the future. And, um, I think really painting that picture and, um, you know, sort of establishing those rules up front and, you know, identifying what you might imagine are sort of warning signs. Um, I'm also noting that you sort of said that you're only going to have an opportunity to see each other, uh, twice in 12 months. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's because of finances and or vacation time. I would certainly have you both think about, even if you may be shorter trips, could they be more frequent? Um, but fortunately, you know, out of sight doesn't have to be out of mind. That The wonderful thing about today is all the uh, apps and opportunities to have FaceTime sort of prioritizing time for your connection. So I think that is the biggest thing I could say is that you always want to keep it fresh in both of your minds, uh, the special unique connection that you have. And so just like even if you were um, in the same city, you have to prioritize sort of time for each other and time for sexy time. And so, you know, long distance, that certainly could be, you know, having your uh, FaceTime or apps and you might be watching the same shows, the same movies, reading the same books so that you can have those conversations. Um, it's also an opportunity to think about, you know, what are the things that make your partner smile and how can you share that through the day? It could be sort of a racy uh, voice message. It could be a sexy text or a sexy Snapchat. Um, and then of course at night or during the day on the weekends, there's always that opportunity, um, especially now with technology, uh, you know, WeVibe has sort of the remote using Bluetooth technology and phone apps. He could um, be sort of directing sort of the vibrator and the sensations. Um, there's also an app called Plume, which is, um, it's got these beautiful, powerful images. You know, they say, uh, pictures are worth a thousand words. And these pictures really um, have an opportunity to like biting your lip, give a sense of what, you know, of thought or feeling you want to convey to your partner. Um, and the greatest thing about that is there's really encryption and privacy and the messages and photos are not saved on the server. So if you haven't checked out Plume, I know Amy Galland, the CEO, it's certainly um, a fun 
app that I think is going to give you lots of ways of conveying uh, through pictures, keeping it sort of light and uh, sexy and fun. And like I said, focusing on the future, you know, you can always use snail mail and care packages. It's really just how to keep each other top of mind and keeping it, you know, light. And, you know, when you have to have any heavy conversations, because sometimes things might come up from your work in other relationships, things with family or friends, or maybe the stress of planning the wedding, just make sure that you're not doing that vis-a-vis text, because obviously sometimes we can't convey tone. So that, again, the frequency with which do you have the visual contact and spending the time, like literally having those date nights, sharing a glass of wine or a beer is, I think, going to make all the difference. So keeping the communication lines open, sharing those concerns, but also most importantly, looping back to focusing on what's unique about your relationship, how and why he chose to end the last one, and what is you're both looking forward to sharing your future together. And knowing that although a year is a long time, it is time limited. So always keep your eye on the end of that, um, that sort of the end of the tunnel when you're going to be back together. And um, as always, want to hear how it goes. Fantastic advice as always, Dr. Megan. Everyone check her out at greatlifegreatsex.com. I couldn't agree more about communicating. I think the toughest conversations where we allow ourselves to be the most vulnerable can be the most important we can ever have. They really do provide those opportunities to grow as individuals and as a couple. And as you move toward marriage, what a what a beautiful gift to, to share and to give each other. It's not to say it's easy, of course, but I do think it can be really powerful. I also asked a friend of mine who was in a somewhat similar situation some years ago if she had any advice to share. Her boyfriend was spending time with his ex as well when they were apart off and on. And she wanted me to share this with you. Listen to your gut and talk about everything in advance. A great guy will respect your needs and feelings. My boyfriend ended up spending far more time with his ex than I was comfortable, including her staying at his place until he realized how much it had hurt me because I had been too prideful to express my feelings. Once he knew, and yes, it did take some tough conversations and including some arguments, we set up boundaries where we only ha- they only hung out together in public. I'm not saying you need to do that specifically, but I do know that stuffing feelings and being blind to what is actually happening can make the idea of what may be happening a whole lot worse in your mind. That is such a good point, right? If we let things fester, it's never a good thing. And the more open and upfront we can be, the better. And I loved what Dr. Megan said about that plume app. I hadn't heard of that. And the Wee Vibe toy, I didn't realize you could use that from different countries. Very cool. And having those dates from afar, it's so wonderful that we can connect through FaceTime and Skype. No, it's not the same, but it also can be amazing, whether it's like, Dr. Megan said, sharing a coffee or a glass of wine or having some sexy playtime and, you know, sending each other, you know, sexy gifts in the mail or virtually or those text messages. I think in many ways, as challenging as the time apart can be, you know, I heard a therapist say recently that absence does not make the heart fonder, but I really do think that how we use that time and space can actually make the relationship stronger. I totally didn't mean to rhyme just there, but I do think that we can, like, for example, um, by doing all these things, you may end up having this 
incredibly romantic creative time that you can look back on and you know 10 20 50 years from now you can look back and go remember how romantic it was that we sent each other these love notes or you know remember that that phone sex we had or that that Skype sex that we had I think there are lots of opportunities there and I just hope you find so many I'm wishing you and your guy all of the best congratulations on your engagement I hope you will keep us posted If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't. And while you're there, leave us a simple review. It can be a sentence or two. doesn't take much, and it really helps us keep things going here. For a lot more, including blog posts and links to my articles and and books and other people and products that I highly recommend, visit my website augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org where you can sign up for very occasional email updates. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.